Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to have you. Um, welcome to all the visitors who are from out of town and also here for the first time. We're really glad that you can make it. Now, it is Easter weekend, and you might be wondering, why does the resurrection of Jesus get a public holiday, two public holidays, in fact, right? Friday and uh, Easter Monday, because um, Easter is on Sunday. What is the big deal about Easter? And you might also be wondering, what is up with the bunnies and the eggs, right? And I'm going to start with the last question first. So in the 13th century, the Catholic Church added eggs to one of the things that they fasted from during the 40 days before um, Easter called Lent. And so they added eggs and meat uh, to the list of things to fast from during this time. But of course, chickens continue to lay eggs during the 40 days. And so what they did was they hard-boiled those eggs, and then they colored them. Um, and in the Greek Orthodox tradition, they colored them red to symbolize the blood of Christ. And then they started giving them to each other as gifts on Easter Day. The egg became a symbol for the resurrection with the shell kind of representing the tomb out of which Jesus resurrected. Now, many years later, in the 1800s, uh, French and German chocolate makers started making chocolate eggs and distributing them during Easter. And in England, by 1873, when Joseph Fry created the hollow chocolate egg, which later got bought up by Cadbury um, in 1935, and so then those Easter hollow eggs, uh, chocolate eggs, became a tradition to hand out. From 1885 to 1917, uh, Peter Fabergé created lavish, decorative, uh, ornate eggs for the Russian Romanov family to give each other for Easter. Um, with jewels and precious uh, stones inside. As for the idea of an egg hunt, some suggest that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther would organize on Easter egg hunts for his congregation to represent, you know, finding Jesus, how the women, and so he would let the women go first because the women were the first to discover that Jesus' tomb was empty and that he had resurrected. The Easter Bunny, on their hand, doesn't really have roots in Christian uh, in Christianity. So the Easter Bunny um, has its roots in pagan religion, the goddess of dawn or the goddess of spring named Esther. So you can see where Easter came from, that, that word. Um, and this goddess of, of spring or dawn or fertility was celebrated during the spring equinox, which is uh, around the time of uh, Passover, which is when Jesus died and resurrected. Um, and her animal symbol was a bunny. So then German communities in the 16th century started the custom of uh, the Easter bunny, which would uh, lay colorful eggs for the children who are good. So you see how they kind of merged the two ideas together. Various customs came together. And so today you have Easter bunnies giving out chocolate eggs um, and doing egg hunts for children to find. So that's kind of the history of how all of this came to be around Easter. But of course... Today we're going to be exploring what Easter is really about. And if you could just bow your heads with me one more time as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we talk about the true meaning of Easter, what the death and resurrection of Christ means to us personally, that your Holy Spirit would um, come into our hearts and help us see that you are indeed alive and that you care about us. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why there is so much suffering and injustice in the world? 
Or perhaps you've experienced loss and pain recently yourself, and you're questioning the purpose of life and existence. Why is it that we feel such anguish when we see innocent people suffer, when we read the news, and we hear about tragedies? Why is it that every fiber of our being says this is not right? Why is it that we can't accept what we see, that this is all there is to life and reality? Why is it that we want more? Why is it that humanity, human beings, have this innate desire for a better place? And why is it that we long, right, in every movie, every book, every story, why is it that we long for that story of redemption, where there's justice, where there's a hero? And I propose to you today it's because there is more to life than what we see. There is more to reality than what we understand. That, that God has put something in our hearts that longs for meaning beyond the beauty and the chaos that we see in life. That there is a purpose and a hope and a legacy beyond death. And the Bible reveals this worldview to us. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by some 40 authors spanning about 1,500 years. And yet there is one refrain in every book by every author, and that refrain is, God cares about you. Life matters to him. And so even though you might be one of 8 billion people in the world alive today, your life matters to God. And it's a concept that's very difficult for us to accept. One, because we feel very insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But two, because we cannot see or hear or touch this God. So how can we really know that God cares about us? How can we really know that he does have a plan to bring about justice and redemption and healing? And the answer and the reason why we're here today is because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Who was Jesus? No one denies that he was a real historic figure who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, and that he was crucified by the order of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. There are multiple non-Christian sources from the first century who corroborate this. For example, Josephus was um, a Jewish historian who wrote about Jesus in his History of the Jews in 93 AD. And he writes, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, who are non-Jews. He was condemned, sorry, uh, he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. So that's a Jewish historian writing about the Christian movement and the Christian group that came out of um, the experience they had with Jesus. And then there's Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, and he described how the Roman emperor Nero persecuted the Christians and how this Christian group originated with Jesus. And he writes, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, 
suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out only in uh, Judea, not only in Judea, the force, first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of this world find their center and become popular. Right? So here's Tacitus saying, oh, there's this insidious little group called Christians, and they came from a man named Jesus Christ, but he corroborates that, yeah, there was a man named Jesus Christ was crucified by the order of Pontius Pilate. And there's more. And so by these accounts, these, these historic accounts by non-Christian sources as well as, of course, Christian sources, Jesus was crucified, a death that was very common by condemned criminals. They would often be scourged or whipped. And if they were, you know, robbers, they would be tied with ropes to the cross so that they could kind of pull themselves up a bit. But if they were murderers or had committed some really severe crime, that's when they were uh, nailed to the cross. If they, were, uh, if they wanted them to die quickly, their hands were nailed vertically to the top and they would bleed out within minutes. But if they wanted them to suffer for hours and even days, they were nailed with their arms outstretched by seven-inch nails that were driven through their wrists and their feet. And the way that they were positioned, all their joints would fall out of place, weight would eventually crush their lungs and their heart so that they would die of suffocation or their heart would literally break. And Jesus was crucified in such a way. And the question is why? What was his crime? The written charge above him said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. What was Jesus guilty of? Matthew, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, was an educated man, and he wrote down the written account of his eyewitness testimony of Jesus. He, would, he was one of the first disciples who followed Jesus and traveled with him. And this is what he recorded in the book of Matthew, written in the first century. And we have copies of uh, the early papyrus today. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. You see, Jesus taught this idea of a kingdom that was different from the, the culture and the society that they lived in. Because he was, he was teaching these counterculture ideas, such as the meek will inherit the earth. And then about you, but that's not the society we live in. It's not the society that the first century Roman Empire lived in. Usually the powerful inherit the earth. The successful, the ambitious, the, you, you could almost say the ruthless, they're the ones who grab what they want. And yet, Jesus came along and said, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defended and uplifted the downtrodden and the outcasts of society. Women, foreigners, the disabled, the poor, everyone that the Jewish culture and the, Roman, the culture of the Roman Empire considered lesser than Jesus gave 
time and attention and compassion towards. He ministered to each person individually, speaking with them, healing them with personal touch. And he raised the dead to life and performed miracles that proved that he was the Son of God. And he was trying to show them that if they wanted to have a relationship with God, that they too could be part of this new kingdom. But the religious leaders didn't like his growing influence. They didn't like him teaching that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. They wanted everyone to, to learn and, and to follow their customs and their traditions because they didn't like the fact that Jesus was saying you could go directly to God and receive salvation through faith and not by works. So they arrested him, as you saw in the video earlier. They went to Pontius Pilate, and they asked him to, to uh, give Jesus the death penalty. This is the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of the first written accounts in the uh, first century. Mark chapter 15, verses 9 onwards. It says, "Do you?" this is Pontius Pilate speaking. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And yet Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And then in the Gospel of Luke, was a doctor uh, in the first century who also wrote an account of the story of Jesus. He writes, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothing by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This scene was not only devastating for his followers who loved him and had traveled with him and, and had grown so close with him over the years, but it was also, can you imagine, they had left everything to follow him. So not only are they extremely sad to see their Lord and Master this way, but now they're wondering, what are we going to do? Right? We have left all to follow him. Now what? And Jesus, in his anguish, with all that excruciating pain running through his body, he says a few words to point his disciples back to what his death is really all about. He says the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is definitely a cry of a man who is in pain. But he, it was also a quote of the first line in a psalm written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. In Psalm chapter 22, written by uh, the king of Israel named David, he was inspired to write this a thousand years before the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. A thousand years before this exact scene took place. And Jesus quotes that first line in order to get everyone who was witnessing this moment to go back and, and remember this psalm. To go back and, and remember that at the end of this psalm, it begins with the anguish of the one who is pierced, but it ends with a triumphal cry, it is finished. And that's another line that Jesus quotes as he's dying on the cross. And the psalm goes on to talk about how through that sacrifice, many, many people, many generations would get to see God. 700 years before the crucifixion, this prophecy by, uh, was foretold by Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Friday. Suspended for all to see, stripped naked. And then from noon until 3 o'clock, the Bible says that there was a great darkness that fell over the land. Then at 3 o'clock, after six long hours of agony, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And it says in Matthew chapter 27, Verses 51 onwards. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion, this is the Roman centurion, and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Greek historian Thales, again a non-Christian who wrote around 50 AD, referred to a darkness during this time. And Flagon of Trellis, another Greek historian, wrote about a solar eclipse at, at about noon and an earthquake during the reign of Tiberius. After Jesus breathed his last, two disciples who had been afraid to publicly follow him during his life now stepped forward. Joseph of and, um, Arimathea and the Jewish ruler named Nicodemus. They come and take the broken body of Jesus. They wrap it in linen sheets and spices, as was the custom of that day. And they laid his body in a tomb in a garden nearby. A large stone was rolled over the entrance to seal it, and the Jewish rulers asked Pilate for Roman soldiers to go and guard the tomb because they said that Jesus had predicted that in three days he would rise again, and they didn't want the, 
they didn't want his disciples to come and take the body or tamper with it and, and claim that Jesus was resurrected. So the Roman guards guarded this tomb day and night for the next several days. And if that had been the end of this story, right? Jesus has died. His followers are now exhausted from their weeping, huddled in their rooms, right? It's sunset, it's Sabbath, and everything is still and everything is quiet. And if that's how this story ended, right? Another victim of a crucifixion, another death in a string of deaths in, in, in antiquity, then there is absolutely no reason for us to be here. Then there would, have no, there would not have been a reason for Christianity, for the Christian movement to be born. But the Gospel writer Matthew goes on, that after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb and, afraid yet filled with joy, ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Can you imagine the women who had come to the tomb, right? Hoping that they could contribute to his burial with their spices in their hands. And instead of Jesus and the soldiers, you know, I'm, as they're walking there, I'm sure they were discussing, how are we going to convince the soldiers to let us in, to embalm his body? But instead, the soldiers have all fled completely terrified. The stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. And they meet Jesus himself in the flesh. Right? They could touch him. They could hear him. And these followers then went and told all the other disciples that Jesus was alive. And Jesus, for the next 40 days, appeared to over 500 people, the Bible record says. For 40 days, appearing to over 500 people, explaining to them right, the Bible prophecies that he had fulfilled. And, and, and it took 40 days, I, I think, because... When, when you experience something that you just don't expect to happen, when you experience something that doesn't fit within your worldview, it takes time to accept that fact and to recenter your values and your, and your worldview around this new experience. And so these, these followers of Jesus who just a few days and weeks before had huddled in, in, in tears at the death of their master, wondering what their future was going to hold, now we're going around excited with pure joy on their faces, telling everyone that Jesus was alive. And these followers had absolutely no political power. They had absolutely nothing to gain for this public proclamation except imprisonment and martyrdom, which many of them experienced. As a result of becoming a Christian in this time, they were persecuted, some of them were crucified like Jesus had been. Some were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. But they continued to share anyway. 
And I don't know about you, but there's no way that I would go around lying about something, risking my life. And it wasn't just one or a handful. Thousands of people in the first century risked their lives and gave up their lives because of their testimony that they had seen Jesus, that he was alive and had ascended to heaven to prepare a place for them. Due to the compelling evidence of their testimony, thousands more believed. And this is the other amazing thing about um, how Christianity came to be. If Christianity and the story of Jesus was a myth, right? Myths and legends take years to develop. And, 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 and basically you're telling stories about a time that nobody can deny or confirm because it was a long time ago and no one had been witness of it. But this is weeks after, right? Days, weeks after the actual event that these witnesses are going around saying, Jesus is alive. And there are plenty of people there alive who can say, no, I was there, that didn't happen. And the movement would have died very quickly. But instead of this movement dying quickly, the way that you know certain conspiracy theories do when there's no collaborating evidence, instead this movement grew like wildfire. So you have people that from 500 to 3,000 to 10,000, 20,000 people being convinced by their testimony, by the witness and the evidence around them that Jesus is alive. Those thousands became millions, those millions became billions, and today there are 2.38 billion people who believe that Jesus is alive. This is a map of the distribution of Christians around the world. And because he is alive, we live with this hope. Have you ever seen an almond tree flower? Did you know that almond trees are one of the first trees to blossom? Usually in February, but sometimes as early as January. And for us, that's summer. But in the northern hemisphere, right, that's still winter. And in Michigan, where Roy and I met, it's winter until May. The almond tree blossoms, even in the snow, as the harbinger of spring saying that winter is almost over and that spring is coming, that warm change is coming. Almond blossoms are symbols for new life and for resurrection. And if it were up to me, all the children today would get almonds instead of chocolates. There's a story recorded in the Bible in Numbers chapter 17 of God making a wooden staff bud and blossom and produce almonds. And it represented how God would bring life from death. It affirmed God's appointment of a, a man named Aaron as a high priest. But it also pointed forward to Jesus as our ultimate high priest who would intercede for his people. And so just as the almonds budded from a dead branch, so Jesus, the branch from the root of Jesse, would bear fruit and resurrect from death. And this is why in Christian iconography you will see this almond shape around Jesus in medieval paintings. So now you know that when you see, look at medieval paintings, to look for the almonds around Jesus that represents his resurrection. Jesus is that almond tree, that first blossom of eternal life, signaling to us that the long winter of injustice and violence and chaos is almost at an end 
and that change is on the way. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that God does have a plan, that he does care, that this world is not as we see it, that there is more to life than the cycles of pleasure and pain, that death is not the end, and that there is hope and redemption for humanity. That while we still live day to day in a world full of pain and injustice and cruelty, that a time is coming when God is going to bring full restoration and healing and recreation. Jesus' resurrection is the down payment of that fullness to come. And because we have that hope, because we have that promise, we can endure whatever comes next. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then what we see is what there is to life. And that is certainly one worldview that you may adopt. I want to I ask you today to consider a different possibility. That there is more to life than what we see. That Jesus has died and resurrected. And that because of that, because death came through one man, life comes through another. Verse 20, uh, 22 of 1 Corinthians says, Whereas in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all the dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen, this is uh, Paul, one of the first Christian converts to Christianity, uh, one of the converts to Christianity in the first century who became a mighty um, Christian missionary. He writes to this church in Corinth. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written shall come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that you labor, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because it changes everything. How many of you saw this this morning? Did anybody see this? A few of you, yes? This morning the boys and I were at the park. And they saw the airplane riding this in the sky. And a girl nearby looked at it and said, T equals heart. Micah saw it and he said, no, it's the cross. Jesus died for us because he loves us. With what lens will you look at the cross? If Jesus is alive, it changes everything. It changes how we interpret the world. It changes how we interact with others. If Jesus is alive, then one day I can finally meet Roy's mother and introduce her to her grandchildren. If Jesus is alive, then we can endure the challenges of today and the uncertainties of tomorrow, knowing that we are not alone. If Jesus is alive, then life is worth 
the living, no matter the ups and downs we experience. And if this resonates with you, we want to invite you now into our communion service. Roy is going to explain the emblems. Um, as everyone these are COVID, COVID-friendly um, little communion individual packs. Um, if you didn't get one, if you just raise your hand, Kay and Galen are going to bring one to you now. Um, so just raise your hand and Kay and Galen will bring one to you now. Gotta talk about my mama before I come up to talk. <laughs> I think the reality is that the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. <laughs> has deep significance, especially when you face life. Normally we start this part of communion with foot washing, but due to um, just health and safety, we've decided to hold off for um, for this time around. So we hope that you can bear with us. Uh, I believe that you received these little cups of uh, bread on top and grape juice underneath. These emblems in and of themselves, um, they are not holy. They just represent um, the closing scenes of Christ's life. So as we partake of these emblems, we can remember what Jesus has done, and what that means for us. So by participating in a representation of the Last Supper, Jesus' followers can think about the closing scenes of Christ's life and renew that connection with him. First, I want to share a few thoughts about the bread sitting on top of the cup. Um, Jesus called himself the bread of life. And by taking in the teachings of Christ and adopting his way of life, there's a promise that Jesus will satisfy the deepest yearnings of our hearts. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. In giving his body to the world, God made a way for us to be saved from the eternal consequences of sin. By believing in and accepting Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, as you eat this bread, may you be reminded of what Jesus' life means to you personally. May you also be reminded of God's desire to be with you. I'm going to pray over the emblem, so you can feel free to open, peel back that first piece of plastic. I'm going to pray over the emblem. And then I'm going to read a passage that will direct us to eat the bread. Um, yeah, I just invite you to be reflective as we turn to this. So will you join me as I pray? Father God, when we reflect upon the implications that we have more to look forward to than this life has to offer. Sometimes all we have to hope in is you. 
So as we take in this bread, may we be reminded that there is more. This is not all that we have to look forward to. So Father, we just pray that you would remind us that you would fulfill that promise. We pray that in your name. We pray this in your name. Jinha, like I do this to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, the text says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the Last Supper, Jesus, taking the wine that was set at the table, instructed his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many for the remissions of sins. Jesus here is teaching an important lesson in building meaningful, long-lasting relationships. We live in a world where the individual... Sorry, my eyes are just water. I can't read my notes. (laughs) We live in an increasingly Western world which puts the individual at the center of life, and much of our decision-making revolves around our personal preferences. Am I gaining meaning out of my career? Do I enjoy this type of work? Yes or no? Do I find meaning and support from my partner? Do they meet my needs? Yes or no? Here, Jesus teaches that the way to find true meaning and everlasting joy is by prioritizing God first and then others and those around us next. In order to experience true life, we must first or excuse me, in order to experience true life, we are first invited to take all from Christ, to take his forgiveness, to take his guidance, to take his presence. And then we are invited to give all for Christ. As you enter into Christ's sacrifice, may you encounter that quality of everlasting life. I'm going to pray over the emblem, similar as last time. Then I'm going to read the passage that will direct us to Uh, drink the juice. And I invite you, as you drink the juice, um, to take the forgiveness of Christ and to meditate on what that means for you. Would you join me as we pray? Father God, we come before you today, and as your blood was shed for our behalf, Father, we take all that you are and all that that means. Father, we live in fear based off of our own mistakes, based off of the mistakes of others, and oftentimes that that fear feels uh, feels overwhelming. But Father, this promise is that where mistakes abound, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So Father, we claim that promise of forgiveness. We step into your presence, and and, and, and we, we take all that you are. May you direct us to do the same for the world around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the hope of resurrection, that we have the hope of redemption, and that we have and a more abundant and purposeful life here and now, knowing that you are alive. And we pray that that reality would inspire us each and every day in all our choices. 
We pray for those who are suffering at this time, that you would draw very near to them and provide comfort and healing. And that, Father God, we would experience you in a tangible way this special weekend as we reflect on your death and resurrection. We pray in your son's name. Amen.